Trigger warning. This podcast may contain themes of suicide, violence, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to Tia and Rio attempt to save themselves and the world. Episode 4, Taxman, Part 1. Previously on Tia and Rio attempt to save themselves and the world, Kiki and Hugh are angry and want to protect Tia and Rio from whatever is intimidating them. Kiki is secretly in love with Tia and has been hiding her addiction to tranquilizers and any pills she can get her hands on. Hugh's anger problem escalates as he confronts Tony, both men threatening each other's lives. Hugh, much like Kiki, is also keeping a secret, his past haunting him more and more the closer he gets to Rio. While the remainder of Tuesday night would consist of sleeping and light snuggles for both Tia and Rio, Father Paul finds himself providing what useful information he has already gathered on the accused heathens. Father Paul sits at his desk in his rectory's office, awaiting further instructions from the small child that has breathed new meaning into his existence. As the small boy approaches, Father Paul notices the enormous shadow towering over him, and it instantly covers the room in utter darkness. The boy smiles when he sees the look of concern on Father Paul's face. Uncertainty breeds anxiety, but I thought we were certain about your destiny, the boy states as he enters the office and takes a seat across from Father Paul. Father Paul looks down, his expression turning grim. I'm so sorry if I offended you in any way. I am not used to celestial sats. Everything about you appears to be a miracle, Father Paul replies, before looking back up at the boy, his face now full of hope and understanding. The boy flashes a toothy grin. It's all right, Father. I enjoy making an entrance. I will test you often just to ensure you're the right man for our mission. Rumor has it you visited the women in person. How did that go? Do they seem unhappy? Are their lives in ruin yet? The little boy claps his hands together as he leans in towards Father Paul. The look of worry returns to Father Paul's face, the lines on his forehead well pronounced. Well, you see, I wouldn't say their lives are in ruin quite yet. Miss Johnson works at a laundromat, and I believe she may be some kind of germaphobe. She most certainly was surprised by my visit, And I left her with something to think about, Father Paul informs the small boy. Oh, and I'm sure you already know this, but her mother very recently passed on. She seems stricken with grief, and when I dove a little deeper, the house she currently resides in is her mother's house. It's a terrible neighborhood already, but I made sure she knew she was no longer safe there. The little boy nods. Happy that Father Paul seems on top of gathering information. What about the other woman she lives with? Father Paul looks puzzled. Another woman? I wasn't aware of another woman. It appeared as though she lives alone. Well, it appears the circumstances have changed. If someone is living with her, then she still has someone in her life. Someone who matters to her. 
Do you understand why this is not a good thing? Yes, of course. In fact, that's my grave concern about Miss Smith and her current employment situation. She works at a local small business called Hughes Music and Collectibles, and that boss of hers has one mean temper. I could tell right away that he feels strongly for Miss Smith and was ready to charge in her defense. She matters to him, and she seems right at home in that store. Father Paul pauses to chuckle before he continues. <laughs> now as for Miss Smith's living arrangements, she appears to live alone in a very cramped trailer. It looks like someone else may have just moved out due to the way the place was arranged. So we did a little digging. Apparently the trailer is under the name of Anita Martinez, Miss Smith's legal guardian as of age 13. The little boy squints. We? Who's we? Father Paul, our mission here can grow in time, but we cannot have untrustworthy people poking around. He could throw our entire call to action into chaos. Father Paul quickly holds up his hands and says, Of course, forgive me, um, what is your name? I am so rude, I didn't even think to ask you before. The boy's grimace twists slightly, one side of his mouth turning upright in a creepy smirk. You may address me as Nathaniel, the boy replies. Nathaniel, what a godly name. It is a pleasure to be here with you, Nathaniel. <sighs> yeah, now going back to Rio, I mean, Miss Smith, are you certain she's now residing alone? As of right now, yes. Though her boss, ah, uh, yes, Hugh Kirby. He's proving to be a much stronger player than we initially thought. Nathaniel and Father Paul stare at each other for a few seconds before Father Paul feels anxious and needs to fill the silence. What do you suggest we do? Nathaniel nods as he continues to gawk at Father Paul with a blank expression, his eyes dark. Is it fair to say that both women are poor? Father Paul returns the nod. Yes, it certainly appears so. It's pitiful, really. They each seem to be a step away from sheer squalor. And how do you keep the poor down? By keeping them poor? Father Paul responds, unsure if his answer is correct. Hmm. Close. You keep the poor down by cutting them off completely, making them so poor they won't be able to think about anything other than how bad they have it. Yes, that's good. That's very good. How do, how do we do that? You can leave this one to me. I have the perfect man in mind. You must await further instruction before proceeding with anything else. And you must be sure to keep our mission a secret. It's a small enough town. We wouldn't want anyone warning them of what's to come now, would we? Father Paul gives another nod in agreement. Nathaniel jumps down from the chair he's in and starts to head out the door. Nathaniel! Father Paul calls right before he's out of sight. Nathaniel stops, then slowly turns around, his expression one of pure annoyance. What? Are you sure there's nothing I can do to assist? I really... I enjoy my newfound purpose. Nathaniel huffs. <sighs> Continue gathering sheep for your flock. Eventually, we'll need more people to fight this battle, if we don't get it contained soon. But proceed with caution, and do not make our plans known. 
Do I make myself clear? Yes, that is very good. But how do I build an army if they cannot know what they are meant to battle? Nathaniel's face forms a menacing scowl. Figure it out! He bellows before disappearing into the darkness from which he came. Wednesday morning, June 8th, 2022, starts off like any other day for Tia. She leaves a friendly note for Kiki, who's still fast asleep in bed, then heads off to walking on sunshine, avoiding anyone else at all costs. Still shaken up by the note attached to a brick throne through her kitchen door's window, she is in no mood for anything other than getting her workday over with and heading to the library later on to do some research. There just has to be a logical explanation for what's happening. What if I threw the brick through my own window, and I don't even know it? Tia theorizes, clicking her pen until she's right at the entrance of the laundromat, the giant sun with sunglasses mocking her with its bloated smile. Her workday, thankfully, is uneventful. No surprise pop-ins from an unsettling priest. No ass-grabs from Barry. The chain machines worked in near-flawless perfection, and even the customers appeared to have their shit together. The day was just too perfect. Tia thinks on her walk back home. When has a day at walking on sunshine ever been easy? As soon as she's inside, she calls out for Kiki. She heads upstairs and finds Kiki asleep, now in her mother's old bed instead of hers. Tia gently taps her. Nothing. Tia grabs Kiki's arm and tosses it down. Nada. She would be a hot mess of a person right now seeing anyone so unflinching, but Tia can clearly see Kiki breathing. Finally, she goes right up to Kiki's ear and yells, Hey! Kiki bolts upright, her eyes wide. It takes her several seconds to return to planet Earth before Tia says, Are you okay? Oh God, are you sick? Tia takes a couple of steps back towards the door. Kiki's voice is hoarse when she replies, No, I'm not sick. I just took a nap and must have passed out. How you doing, T? I'm fine, just worrying my best friend may be the soundest sleeper to ever live. You aren't going to wake up for nothing. Is that normal for you? Tia asks, concerned. Kiki brushes off any of Tia's anxiety. Yeah, of course. I'm getting older, so I'd just like to sleep more, Kiki tells her with a nervous laugh. Okay, I just wanted to come home first and grab some of my notebooks. I'm going to head to the library for some research. You want to come? Tia heads out of her mother's bedroom and into hers, grabbing a few of her lined paper notebooks. <sighs> What's with you always wanting to go to the library? What about the mall? What about the mall? Kiki sighs heavily <sighs> and thumps out of bed. She stomps her way over to Tia's room and peeps at her best friend with a look of amusement. I'm just saying, I know how much you love the library, but every now and then, you should change it up. Tia loads the notebooks into her worn-down satchel. She's closing the flap as she asks, Kiki, do you want to go to the mall? Well, duh, Kiki says with a grin. The two women exchange a playful smirk before Tia gives in. Fine, we can go, just not tonight. Tonight, I have to go to the library. Kiki lets out another frustrated sigh. Oh, T, why? Why do you always have to go to the library? It's not normal, you know? Hey, it's normal for me. What's normal anyway? How do you define normal? Tia fires back. 
Kiki glares in return before stating, You got me there. If I go with you and help you with your research, can we do something fun soon? Please. We can do something fun soon, even if you don't go with me. You don't have to help me. I know you're not a big fan of the library. Why would I be? I'm always being yelled at. Because you're so loud. Tia replies with a cheerful laugh. Tia and Kiki both descend the stairs. Tia slips her satchel on, and Kiki rushes right back up the stairs and returns with her mini backpack in hand. You set? Tia finds it oddly comforting to get out of the house after the thought of the note from yesterday pops back into her mind. She pulls out the pen she always carries in her pocket and gives it a few clicks. I am now. Kiki proudly sports her little backpack. Just as the two women are about to head out the front door, a loud knock on it causes them both to jump back and gasp. (gasps) They exchange a look of embarrassment before Tia peers through the blinds on the window by the front door. From the side, she can make out that it's a man dressed in a black suit holding a briefcase. She studies the man for another few minutes, waiting to see if he's going to leave. The man in the black suit knocks again. He turns his face and makes direct eye contact with Tia, sending an instant chill down her spine. She doesn't see a white collar on him and is thankful for a moment that it's not the priest from yesterday. Even so, she's apprehensive to open the door. Who is it? Tia calls out, now back to standing at the front door. My name is Patrick Warden, and I'm here on behalf of the Lived Collections Agency. I need to speak to Miss Johnson in regards to a debt that's owed on the mortgage. May I please come in? Tia glances over at Kiki, who's violently shaking her head. Tia shrugs, whispers, Have my back. And Kiki gives a reluctant nod before Tia opens the front door about halfway and greets Mr. Warden with a big, phony smile. Hi, I'm Miss Johnson. I prefer we just talk here. Is that okay? Mr. Warden is a strikingly good-looking man with dark brown eyes, shiny black hair that matches his even shinier black shoes, who's sporting a solid rich red tie that perfectly accents his all-black suit. Tia feels herself getting lost in the man's eyes, as if there's there's something something I need to find out. Of course, this shouldn't take long, Mr. Warden replies with a friendly grin. Your mortgage has been delinquent due to two months of missed payments. Your house is in danger of being foreclosed on. If you are unable to make payments at this time, we at our agency are here to help you sell. Tia is dumbfounded. I'm sorry, what? A scowl forms as she follows up with, Now, my understanding is that our mortgage is with the one and only National Bank. How come I haven't heard anything from them? And I also don't think it's possible for a debt collector to be in charge of or assisting in the sale of my house. Tia's voice becomes increasingly curt with each passing word. Mr. Warden takes a moment to study this very sure woman in front of him. He carefully responds, It's on behalf of the one and only National Bank that I have been called here. They apparently cannot get a hold of Mrs. Johnson, whose name is on file, in order to obtain the scheduled monthly mortgage payments. Of course they can't get a hold of her. She just died, Tia says, feeling herself getting worked up. Kiki pokes out from behind Tia. Mister, I don't think you are who you say you are, and I don't like the way you're talking to Miss Johnson here. Mr. Warden stares down at the ground for a few seconds before looking directly at Kiki. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, ladies, but I'm at least providing you with a warning that your house is in danger. As a debt collector, 
I pride myself in giving people a last chance before we have to take over. Tia's mind is racing. I thought I had been taking care of everything. I thought I was still making that stupid payment. I have been so out of it lately. Maybe I honestly did make a mistake and haven't been sending in the checks like I thought. Do you have a card? I would like to get back to you about this. I thought I had been making these payments. The one and only national bank must disagree with you. Otherwise, they wouldn't have sent me. He tells them, his dark eyes sympathetic. I'm on your side, but in order to not make you lose your home, you need to make those payments. Mr. Warden hands Tia a solid black card with bright red lettering on it that simply reads, Patrick Warden, Revenue Agent Extraordinaire, and provides a phone and fax number. Tia looks at the back and it's blank. You don't have an office somewhere? That's shady as hell, Kiki immediately remarks. Mr. Warden laughs. Huh, I'm a freelance agent of sorts. I have many different offices all over the world. I assure you, I am a legitimate agent. Please, feel free to call me with any questions. I'd be glad to get you back on track with your finances. I'm so sorry for your untimely loss. He tells the two women glaring at him, full of suspicion. Yeah, thanks. Tia replies, backing up. Kiki backs up too, and as soon as they're both behind the door, Tia angrily slams it shut. Man, there was something really off about that guy, Kiki says, pulling on one of her braids. Tia nods. I'm with you. I know I've never received a call or even an email from the one and only National Bank about this issue. You should call him, Kiki suggests. Tia immediately gets her cell phone out of her satchel and sets the bag down on the back of the couch. Good idea, Tia says, and she Googles the number and address to make sure she calls the right place. After three rings, an agent picks up. Good afternoon. This is the one and only National Bank. How can I help you today? The agent seems cheerful, which helps keep Tia calm when she responds with, Hi, my name is Tatiana Johnson. My mother, Mrs. Deja Johnson, has an account with you guys that she uses to pay her mortgage. She recently passed away, and I was wondering if you guys sent a debt collector out. I thought I was still paying on this mortgage, and I'd like to know what's going on. Ah, yes, Miss Johnson. I have Deirdre's file pulled up here now. Hmm, it does appear to be a delinquent account. But that doesn't make any sense. She just died. Don't you have some sort of forgiveness period? Don't fret, Miss Johnson. This will all be sorted out. It looks like it's been two months since a payment was made on the mortgage, which would explain the debt collector coming by. As long as you make the two missed payments before the end of next month, so that will actually be three full payments you need to make by the end of next month. Then no debt needs to be collected, and the house will be fine. That's a lot of money all at once. Three mortgage payments is just under $2,000, Tia states, her hand feeling around for her pen. She clicks it all the while they continue their conversation. Kiki mouths, what are they saying? But Tia gives her a friendly, albeit frustrated wave of her hand as she continues talking. We understand that, Miss Johnson. We are certain you'll figure something out. I wouldn't want to lose the house my mother's memories lived in, even if she died there, the agent says. Excuse me? Tia thinks she heard the agent wrong. I said I wouldn't want to lose my house either, especially now since there's really nothing else to live for. Look, I know where you're coming from, but unfortunately we don't offer any payment plans that assist with mortgages at this time. The housing market is so inflated right now, 
We apologize for this inconvenience. So it sounds like I'm on my own. Tia's very angry at the entire situation. Life is so hard, isn't it? What did you say? <laughs> you know there's a way to make this all go away, right? What are you talking about? I think you know what you have to do to make everything better. Who is this? Hello? Tia calls out. The other line is totally silent. Tia's eyes are wide, and she feels slightly sick to her stomach. What's wrong? What'd they say? Was that dude legit? Kiki asks, seeing the distraught look wash over Tia's face. I don't know. Let's go to the library. Tia says before whipping the satchel back on and hurrying out the door. Kiki quickly grabs her mini backpack, ensures the front door is locked, and races to catch up with her best friend. Wednesday morning begins with a surprise breakfast in bed for Rio. She wakes up in Hugh's large bed with an oversized men's shirt on and is about to get up when Hugh strolls through the door with a small tray in hand that's covered in an array of breakfast foods. Oh my god, Hugh, you didn't have to do this. It's too much. You're already letting me stay here. I should be the one cooking for you. You know, if I ever did that. Rio laughs, the giddiness in her voice undeniable. Hugh smiles and motions for Rio to scoot over so he can climb into bed as well. I do this all the time for myself, so I figure I'd give you the full preview of my bachelor lifestyle, Hugh jokes as he settles next to Rio. Rio gives Hugh a quick peck on the cheek before staring at all the delicious food right in front of them. Hugh has made a stack of pancakes, a plate of sausage, there's fresh strawberries and blueberries in what appears to be a yogurt parfait, a cup of coffee for Hugh, and a glass of orange juice for Rio. There's also a small stick of butter and a bottle of real maple syrup. Rio grabs the syrup and starts digging into the pancakes. Hugh sips his coffee before diving in as well. Oh, I almost forgot. Hugh says, moving slightly to pull his cell phone out of his pocket to turn on some music. There's a Bluetooth speaker on Hugh's nightstand that provides them with full stereo sound. Rio has never heard the tunes he's playing, but she enjoys the upbeat vibe, and they continue to eat without discussion for a while longer. Once most of the food has been consumed, Rio softly says, Hugh, I don't remember coming up here last night. I see I'm in what must be one of your shirts, cause I know I didn't pack anything like this. Hugh finishes the last few sips of his coffee before letting out a sigh. <sighs> yeah, you were having a really bad dream. Do you remember screaming last night? Rio shakes her head, confused. She can't remember anything except cuddling with Hugh on his large reclining chair and falling asleep to a movie they had on. She tells Hugh this, and he looks concerned. Damn, you must be one sound sleeper. You fell asleep in the chair, and you seemed so peaceful that I didn't want to disturb you. I came up here to get ready for bed, and as I was just grabbing some extra blankets to come down and sleep on the couch, I heard you scream. I thought someone had broken in and was attacking you with how loud and startling the scream was. I ran down to see what was going on, but you were just sitting up in the chair staring directly in front of you. Jeez, well, that's creepy. Yeah, I'll admit, you scared the shit out of me. I tried waking you up by calling your name, by clapping, 
and it wasn't until I gave you a slight shake that you seemed at least a bit more alert. Hugh moves the tray table off the bed and places it down next to the Bluetooth speaker on the nightstand beside him. He turns to Rio, his expression full of worry. You... you really don't remember anything that happened last night? Rio shakes her head, his worry triggering her own bad anxiety. Jesus Christ, Hugh, just tell me what happened. You're freaking me out. Rio responds, her voice raising several octaves. Hugh gives Rio a forced smile before explaining, I'm sorry. I don't mean to freak you out. I'm just... I'm worried about you. I've never seen you so out of it. Hugh reaches for Rio's hand, but she pulls back. Hugh, please, just spit it out. Hugh nods. Okay. After I shook you to try and snap you out of the trance you seemed to be in, you got up and walked over to the basement door, opened it, went downstairs, I turned on the lights and followed you, and you went right over to the corner of the room and... Hugh hesitates, his eyes wide, his hands shaky. Rio notices how nervous he seems, and her heart starts to pound. Her throat tightens. What? She can't take the suspense any longer. With a heavy breath, Hugh says, You went over to the corner, where I don't have anything. It's just an empty corner in the basement. You walked right over and started screaming. I tried to run to you. To tell you that it's okay. You're just having a nightmare. But I somehow couldn't move to get to you. It's like there was some kind of force keeping us apart. But what scared me most of all was what I heard you say. You said, Leave him out of it. This doesn't have anything to do with him. It's me you want. I told you already you can't have me. I won't do what you've asked. Uh, I said all that? Rio's nervousness becomes overwhelming. Yeah, you said exactly that. All of that. At least 20 times. Maybe more. That's why I remember it word for word. You wouldn't stop saying those things over and over. Do you know what any of that means? Hugh holds out his hand again, and this time, Rio accepts it. Uh, I... I don't know. She can feel tears start to form and does her best to try and fight them. What happened next? I called out to you multiple times, and I finally broke down and screamed myself. I screamed your name, and once I did, I could go over to you, and you ran to me. You hugged me. You said you were sorry, and that you just wanted to go back to sleep. So, I helped you up the basement stairs, then guided you up to the bedroom. You were still so out of it, which I have heard people who sleepwalk do strange things. And you went into my closet, looking for clothes, because that's the answer you gave me when I asked what you were doing, and then you put on that shirt you have on now, which does look great on you, by the way. Hugh teases, clearly trying to improve the current mood. Wait, I stripped in front of you and I don't even remember it? Hugh narrows his eyes. That's what you're focusing on? Well, if you saw me naked... I was just kind of hoping I'd get to see the look on your face. You know, in case it's one of disappointment or exceeded expectations. Rio replies with a smirk. I'm sorry, you're right. There's a lot to unpack here. She looks down, embarrassed by her reaction. Hugh rubs her shoulder. I was a perfect gentleman. I turned around the moment I realized you were going for it. He assures her with a laugh. And then once you had the shirt on, you climbed into bed. 
I asked if you wanted me to stay, and you said yes, so I did. I wanted to make sure you were all right, and the rest of the night was peaceful. Thank God. Wow, that's all really embarrassing, Rio says, feeling like she made Hugh star in an episode of The Twilight Zone. The urge to belt out Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles was getting harder by each passing second. Rio hurriedly follows up with, Were you able to get any sleep? Hugh's smile is genuine now, and he pulls her to his chest, instantly putting her urge to sing at bay. Yeah, I slept fine. I was just glad you finally had some peaceful rest, Hugh replies. I'm sure you're just having nightmares after everything that's happened. That fucking prank still pisses me off, and if anything like that happens again, I want to know about it right away, okay? Rio nods in agreement. Uh, Of course I'll tell you. Just please don't get yourself arrested or something, okay? Hugh laughs. I'll do my best. Still holding Rio close, Hugh affectionately kisses her forehead before moving to get out of bed. I gotta start heading to the shop, but I'll be back before you know it. I can go in with you today. I know I'm technically off, but if you need the help, hey, it's your day off and I want you to relax and rest. Yesterday wasn't a great day, and I want you to take it easy. Is that fair? He asks while picking out his clothes. Sure, I would say that's fair. I'll just miss you, is all. This makes Hugh smile, but his smile fades as the obituary comes back into mind, front and center. If you need anything while I'm gone today, you call me and you let me know? Yes, sir, Rio replies with a wink. She climbs out of bed and gives Hugh an affectionate hug before heading to the bathroom. She closes the door, then loudly says, Thanks again for letting me stay here. This is like a palace compared to my place. Hugh is finishing getting dressed as he answers, I like having you here. I'll see you tonight. can't stop ruminating about Rio on his ride to work. Her porcelain skin is always vibrant and glowing, her dark green eyes bright and expressive. Every look she gives has meaning, the soft kisses and tender, no, I can't keep doing this to myself. I can't do this to her, Hugh thinks. He so desperately wants to give everything to her, but he feels he can't. His mind practically screams no, whenever he even thinks about her. When Hugh pulls up to his store, he feels a momentary lapse of relief. It's a good thing she's not here now. The less we're around each other, the less hard it's going to be in the end. Hugh continues to obsess about his future plans with Rio as he lets himself in the back and quickly preps the store. Wednesdays tend to be slower days at Hugh's music and collectibles. Hugh gets comfortable at his office desk and starts pulling up his sales from the past month to review. He stares blankly at the numbers in front of him. He can't focus. Rio clouds his mind. He opens the drawer directly next to his desk, and his eyes fixate on the old newspaper clipping. This store is a new beginning. Just let it be that new beginning! Hugh attempts to convince himself, but it's no use. He slams the desk drawer shut and lays his head in his hands, the feeling of defeat overwhelming. Hugh had grown up as an only child, and his father was an abusive drunk. 
He never saw his father hit his mother, at least not for a long time, but he would hear the arguments. He could hear the slaps and punches as he hid in his room, terrified his father would come after him too. When he was about 10 years old, he and his mother fled their home and found refuge in his aunt's house. He and his mother spent many, many years always looking over their shoulders, and thankfully, they remained safe. So once Hugh was in high school, he was ready to start living a normal life. He wanted to have friends, a girlfriend, and do all the things that kids normally just get to do. Like Rio, Hugh found relief in music. He always had a song stuck in his head, and he was always the first one to critique the DJ at every high school dance. His senior year, he met Yolanda, and everything started to fall into place for Hugh. Yolanda was a tall, leggy woman with light brown hair and big brown eyes. The dimples on her cheeks when she smiled was one of the first things about her to catch Hugh's attention. The two of them fell head over heels for each other just before graduation. When Yolanda went off to college, Hugh initially followed suit. He didn't want to be apart from her, so he majored in business while she studied nursing. Everything was going well for this happy couple until Hugh walked in on Yolanda having sex with his college roommate. Hugh and Yolanda would break up, but that was hardly the last time they would see each other. Throughout college, Hugh slept with a fair number of women, some more serious than others, but he always tried to be a gentleman about his indiscretions. It was fun for sex to just be sex, but eventually, it wasn't enough for him. Hugh desired a deep connection with someone, someone he could share his life with. Not long after college, Hugh started working in retail. He was the type of guy who easily fell into managerial positions because he was determined and enjoyed the thrill of sales. It was a few weeks after his big promotion to store manager at a local entertainment store that he and Yolanda would bump into each other again. And that night, the two would meet up for drinks to catch up and see how the other was doing. And it would be that night that they would have lots and lots of sex, their connection now deeper than ever. So it made sense that in a few months' time, since the pair was now going steady again, that Hugh would propose. And Yolanda said yes. They were in their mid-twenties, and they were ready to spend the rest of their lives together. Everything seemed like the end of a modern fairy tale, where everything would work out and the two would live happily ever after. But that was not the case. Most true fairy tales are dark, scary, and a lot of bad things happen, and that would be more accurate to describe what would come next. Yolanda wanted everything from Hugh. Her nursing degree had fallen through, but due to her good looks, she had picked up a few modeling gigs that paid rather well, but not enough that she could brag about her earnings. When Hugh continued to be the manager for the local entertainment store in their hometown outside of Cleveland, Yolanda expressed many times that his job did not pay him enough. Hugh was very happy in his work, but once Yolanda hit 30, her modeling career took a nosedive. The industry always wanted younger, skinnier, prettier, and they ended up making Yolanda feel like she was an old, ugly has-been. Hugh never saw her in that way. He loved her and knew she was beautiful, but her own resentment would begin to haunt both of them, and her carelessness about everything made Hugh resort to drinking. Hugh started drinking a lot. By the age of 30, Hugh was starting to love alcohol as much as his father had. When Yolanda was cold with him, which had become the norm around their house, Hugh would find the warmth he wanted at the bottom of the bottle. They sometimes talked about having a family, but neither of them ever seemed in the right headspace to really make such a lifelong commitment. One night, on October 11th, 2008, after a very heated argument, 
Yolanda would tell Hugh that she thinks he's a loser, that he's dead inside and there is nothing left between them. Hugh disagrees with her, telling her that she's the one who's dead inside. They were both so unhappy, and neither of them were getting what they wanted out of life. He wanted to be a better man for her, but he didn't know how. The more he thought about Yolanda and the troubled relationship they had, the more he realized that maybe this wasn't love at all. Whatever spark the two of them had, had died a long time ago. Yolanda told them to get out of the house that night. His drinking was making her sick, and she said they needed time apart. He didn't want to leave, but he couldn't bear to stay with her anymore. Not after she shattered what remained of his whiskey onto the kitchen tiles. Not after she screamed he was worthless. Not after she picked up a piece of glass from the shattered bottle and ran towards him, threatening him with violence and despair. He could feel his anger coming to a boil. He could feel the rage ready to take full control. He was, for the first time in his life, afraid of himself and what he might be capable of. He wanted to strike her. He wanted to make her pay for sucking the life out of him. Her beauty, he realized, was only skin deep. There was nothing more than a superficial attraction between the two, and this realization was the ultimate breaking point. A point of no return. On this foggy night so many years ago, Hugh could have never anticipated how his life would change forever. The Tia and Rio Show is created, written, and produced by Callie Overlander. Tia is performed by Julie McCormick. Rio and all other voices that are not Tia are performed by Callie Oberlander. Sound design, editing, and music are by Eric Brown. My writing continuity checkers and my biggest cheerleaders are Jules Johnson and Hilary Roback. And if you've made it this far, please remember, even in the darkest times, there is always hope. Pocket Podcast Network. Quality programming right to your pocket.